0: Hey, strangers. Welcome to another episode of The Strange Sessions. As always, I am Kurt, and as always, I don't even know what to say. As always, I am joined by my silent but violent co-host, Krista, who is extremely sick, and the more she talks, the worse her cough gets. So she is not going to be talking this episode, but at least yell something so people know you're actually here. I'm alive. She's alive, but she is... (laughs) In a world of hurt, she is really sick. And we also, in the studio, have uh, making his second... What word am I looking for? Appearance? Appearance? Second appearance. uh, He was last heard in, way back in Season 2, Episode 4, John Teeter. That is my brother, Corey Konechny. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us. No problem. This kind of turned into a big cluster because Corey's wanted to come on for a while, and... As you heard in the last episode, I've been having issues with my eyesight, like looking at a computer screen. So it was going to be, I was going to come in with Corey and Krista, and this is uh, my favorite mini-mystery. So those two were going to do the mini-mysteries, and I was just going to, like, you know, be Krista. (laughs) And uh, and then Krista ended up getting really sick, so now I'm doing one of the stories, and Corey's doing one of the stories. So thank God Corey was able to be here this time, because (laughs) we're both kind of hot messes right now but i will be getting new glasses pretty soon but it just sucks like if i do anything on my computer for like an hour or so i just get a pounding headache that's funny I always see you on your phone yet though it doesn't hurt i usually have my glasses like up or off when i'm looking at my phone because my eyesight is getting so bad because i haven't been to the eye doctor in 15 years which chris is shaking her head at me But we want to give uh, shout outs to our newest strangers, and those are Scott Shepard, Jay Vandermead or Mide, Tristan Petrash, Sarah Uselton or Uselton, Deb Whitmer Money, and Frankie Smara. Thank you guys so much for joining the strangers. If you listen and want to join the strangers, please do it because I've been in a lot of groups on Facebook and I literally have not seen a group of people this awesome and this supportive and this friendly i mean you guys are amazing seriously every time i go in that that group i'm just amazed by how cool people are so thank you guys so much for that so definitely join the strangers and do we have any housekeeping Corey?
1: i don't want to give any shout outs to anybody uh no no shout outs for me no shout outs i'm just glad to be here and help you guys out and
0: thank you for coming on again yeah no problem a lot of people like you being here for john teeter It seems so long ago. It does. It really does. Like when I think about the fact that this season is almost done, it feels like it went fast. But then when I think back to our first episode of the season being Denver Airport, it seems so long ago. You know, so we are coming to the end of the season. This is our second, last, or penultimate episode. And there's going to be a little bit of a break before the final episode because Krista is going to be out of town. She's going to Las Vegas going to win tons of money at blackjack high risk i think i, I might i might be the new co-host she right. won't be coming, yeah, she won't be be like, coming back yeah she all. ain't gonna need this little penny ante outfit anymore <laughs> she's gonna be high high risk poker
1: million dollars is this a business trip you're going to promote uh strange sessions, sessions. <laughs> <laughs> the comic-con
0: yeah christicon so we are going to jump right into our taste test. Corey brought some stuff. I brought some stuff. Corey's is actually
1: good because he felt bad. Was Krista being sick, I didn't want to end up getting more cr- crickets or insects or something that was going to be nasty. So I just ended up getting some. I don't even know necessarily what they are. They're like brownies. Uh, one is a cashew butter blondie brownie, a raspberry cocoa brownie, mm-hmm. and a almond butter brownie. But they are, oh, let me see if I can read these here grain free, gluten free, paleo, non GMO, <laughs> kosher, dairy free, soy free, and preservative free. Wow. And probably tastes, probably in it, it taste, tastes free. It probably tastes like air. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so awesome. We will try those. Any preference on first. Okay. Krista can pick first, whatever flavor okay. she wants. What do, want to awesome. <laughs> do I want to not taste? Oh, we're going to try all three of them? We don't have to. Which flavor is this?
1: This is the almond butter. I am worried about it being taste-free. Thanks. It smells good. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it does. It smells stronger than yeah, I kind of thought it would. Like a homemade brownie kind of? Yeah. It smells exactly like a homemade brownie. Ready? I'm ready. It's actually really good. For being gluten-free and everything, it's re- it's actually really good. It tastes a lot like a homemade brownie. Yeah, it really
1: good. <coughs> yeah, it does. I don't, I don't get a whole lot of the almond butter taste. No, but it's but really good. Yeah, it's... The stuff is on top. Yeah, for not... I was really uh, assuming it was going to be taste-free. No. It is uh, a lot better than I thought. It's
0: surprisingly really, really good.
1: It's not dry at all. Yeah, the company is base culture. I like that. (laughs) Try another one. Oh, you want to?
0: Or or do you? What do you want to do?
1: We can save a couple, or snack on them during the podcast.
0: (laughs) That was really good. You could you actually taste it? Mm -hmm. Okay. cough drop. Krista does not have a microphone, an attempt not to talk, so I should probably stop asking her constant questions. (laughs) But that was good. I don't know. Mine isn't going to be quite that good, but I don't think it's going to be horrible. But it has like one of the main ingredients. is kind of like a trigger for me where as soon as I hear it, I automatically think it's nasty. Spicy? No, not spicy. It is. Yeah, yeah.
1: One to 10. What do you give this? I give it an eight. You know, I think it's better than I thought. Yeah. And I mean, for the size, it's perfect.
0: Yep. I give it a nine. I think it's really good. Krista gives it a nine also, (laughs) pointed to me. My taste test is Vegan Rob's Sorghum Brussels Sprout Puffs. Why would you even make that? <laughs> I don't know. Brussels sprouts, I've tasted them once, and I absolutely hated them. And the only other time I had them was when you, me, all of us drank those nasty Jones, Jones sodas. Jones Thanksgiving sodas? The Jones Thanksgiving soda. They had a Brussels sprout soda. And that yeah. was, even with all the the crap that we've eaten on here, that was the worst thing I have ever ingested in my life was the Brussels Jones Brussels sprout soda.
1: I don't think I've even...
0: They also had cauliflower puffs, but I like cauliflower. Brussels sprouts, I don't like.
1: I think they're good if you cook them down so <laughs> and they're put tender. put a ton of butter and on a ton of butter, yeah. salt, and pepper. Yeah. But as a puff form?
0: I don't know. I don't know. So we are going to try vegan Rob's. Oh, I'll read this here. <laughs> you don't have to be vegan to enjoy vegan Rob's plant-based snacks. Created from ingredients of this green earth, they are addicting with a taste that's out of this world. The path of inner peace begins with six words, Vegan Rob's Sorghum Brussels Sprout Puffs. Close your eyes, inhale deeply, take a bite and feel your stress melt away. Focus on the crunch and enjoy rich flavors as you exhale and find inner peace knowing that they are baked with non-GMO ingredients, an excellent source of riboflavin, and a great source of thiamine. So crunch to your heart's content, and shh, don't tell the kids there's veggies in here. Love yourself, our planet, and all living things. Snack as clean and kind as possible.
1: These these things are probably going to suck, but that guy should get paid a lot of money he for that. Their... should because
0: that's really good.
1: It smells like like packing peanuts you get in a
0: in a box from Amazon. <laughs> I can't even describe that. Yeah, I... they look like they look like cheetos that are lightly green cheeto cheese puffs
1: cheetos that are about three years older than they should be
0: i don't think they're gonna be super bad but it's just weird to me you ready Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. my first thought was funyun it tastes like a like a funyun that's gone bad there, there's a like that initial taste has like yeah. a funkiness to it. They're not bad, <laughs> really. Okay, they're not bad at all, actually.
1: I don't get any Brussels. Sprout I don't get any Brussels sprout or flavor, like butter, or I mean, all I get is like the onion powder. But there's a little funk to it right at the, you know, aftertaste. Like and
0: not the like the, the not the aftertaste, like the first taste. Has like a little bit of a bite to it, or something that I can't put my finger on. The more I eat them, the more I like them. They're actually, pretty good. It does taste a lot like a funyun, but it tastes like a mild, a yeah, mild funyun. Like
1: funyun that doesn't get a lot of the onion powder. Yeah, just your average yeah. like bottom of the thing.
0: Or like if you get like a generic brand funyun that sometimes don't have a lot. There you of, go. This tastes like a That's, generic yep. brand funyun like sure fine or like your dollar store brand yeah yeah like munions (laughs) (laughs) like munions would be what this is okay one to ten seven i can see snacking on these pretty good krista says seven i say a nine again i think these are actually really good what would you give an actual funyun then? If you gave this, a tan funyuns oh, okay. are like one of my favorite snacks. I love. Oh man, I could go to town on a bag of funyuns. Like nobody's business. <laughs> Yum. Those are good. Do You want to take those home for Jim, Corey?
1: Uh no, they're all yours. Okay, oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll take them home. <laughs> I could. They, I think they knew I was hinting that I kind of wanted to take those. <laughs> we got to hint. So we are going to go ahead and jump right into the episode, and it is, like I said, a My Favorite Mini-Mystery. For this one, Corey actually did the research for his story, and I think that's the first time we've ever had somebody do that, so that's kind of cool. Do research? (laughs) Corey will just be scrolling through Wikipedia. (laughs) Uh, uh, So yeah, uh, we're going to start with Corey's episode. Mine might be a little short. Mine I was actually already had started for a backup episode. So I'm kind of glad we're using it for this one because I don't think it would have been long enough for a backup episode. You're going to know what story it is as soon as I start talking about it. Krista doesn't have any idea what either of our stories are. Corey's I know because I, I don't remember much of it, but I remember that was one of the best episodes of Thinking Sideways that I listened to because I knew nothing about this case and it was just like a really fascinating episode. So we will start with Corey's mini-mystery.
1: All right, mine is the uh, disappearance of Ben McDaniel. Um, so, just to go over a little bit of that real quick. All right, on uh, August 18th, 2010, 30 year old Ben McDaniel was seen driving at Vortex Springs in Ponce de Leon, Florida. Uh, he was last seen near a locked gate that stops any uncertified divers from entering a dangerous part of an underwater cave. Krista's nodding now, so Krista remembers this story. Hey. <laughs> uh, two employees enjoying a dive after work saw Ben trying to access the cave by possibly tampering with a gate. Um, so was the gate on the outside? Where was the gate? Like I would never know is, is the gate like attached? The gate is <sighs> underwater and it leads into the deepest parts of the cave. It's, I believe a gate that's bolted or yeah, it has to be bolted into rock. Yeah. So it stops anybody from getting into this access hole to get into the big part of the cave. How do you get into the gate do you have to have a key yeah there's a key in the dive shop the dive shop double checks your authorizations double checks that you have the certifications, certifications and um gives you the key and then you take the key go down unlock it and i guess i, guess I don't know what you do with the key after that you i'm assuming unlock you just it, have bring to bring it back that up with you i don't know yeah i mean that's one thing that never really yeah gets like mentioned. i never
0: understood that like do, are there multiple keys in case
1: do you lock the gate behind you I'm assuming you have to. Yeah, that's one thing that I don't particularly know. Okay, not people, not, not a whole lot of people probably ask that question. Yeah, but um, he did not have the needed certifications to get to key from the dive shop, so that's why he probably was trying to tamper with to bypass it. Um, the employees kind of let him go, decided to ignore it. He was a regular, a frequent guy that was going to do some scuba diving, so they let him go, and then two days later. One of the employees that opened the gate for Ben noticed that his truck was still there in the same spot. That employee called the police and Ben's never been seen since. So he went into that cave and nobody's ever seen him come out. So that's where it goes. Now, Vortex Spring itself, um, to give you a picture of it, it claims on its website to be the largest diving facility in the state of Florida. So try to imagine a U-shaped spring-fed pool the right side is pretty shallow at 25 feet, and it gets progressively deeper the more left you go. The right side is used for basic scuba, scuba instruction and swimming. Uh, the left side is more used for deeper and uh, swimming as well, but it uses a lot deeper scuba techniques. The left side also houses the dive house, which is where you go in to get that key that we were talking about. To get your cave diving certification, it requires two months of training uh, to include 120 dives with an instructor or certified diving partner. Oh, no, I didn't realize it was that. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, you think about diving 125 dives, that's quite a bit. I already don't. I'm Diving freaks me out. Like The thought of diving freaks me out. Chris is nodding, so she gets it. <laughs> well, I think the policy was instituted because there were some divers that died. 13? Um, I think it was during the 1990s, died in the caves because they were just kind of going in willy-nilly. So that's when they instituted the policy of having at least 120 dives with an instructor-certified partner. Um, At the 90-foot mark on the left side is when the diver would come across a sign with a grim reaper telling the inexperienced to turn back that's uh, the pi- a picture
0: that we have in our teaser, yep.
1: our teaser picture. I think that's like the most famous picture of yeah. anything to do with this case. <laughs> it's a creepy picture though. Yeah, I mean, the,
0: the creepy sign with the grim reaper saying
1: "Don't don't go here unless you are certified." So at that ninety foot mark, the passage turns a little bit downwards and tightens as it leads to a deeper part of the locked gate. There's also additional signs and markers from divers from the past. Uh, at about a hundred and fifteen foot mark. Uh, vortex spring is a simple tube cave, it's called. It doesn't have very many splits. It doesn't have very many nooks or crannies, but the way to get in is through a simple tube in the beginning. Um, it gets very tight and very dangerous. There's a long pipe that, if you see any pictures for this case, it's used for dredging sand in and out of the cave. It lays along the bottom of the cave floor, and some divers have used lines by mounting them to that pipe so they can kind of explore and come back out. Yeah. Um, although there is only one exit, you can still kind of get lost in there. Um, so there's a lot of tunnels that branch off the main tunnel? No. I mean, you can kind of go a little bit left and right in places, but you can't really get lost per se. Yeah. It's just they like to be able to, I mean, it gets dark. I mean, yeah. if your flashlights go out, at least you could have this tow rope where you can kind of pull yourself back to where you are. Um, at the time of Ben's disappearance, the cave was described as a long line with one right-handed twist and four major restrictions. The restrictions are spots where it's incredibly difficult for a diver to fit through uh, requires using side-mounted tanks because if you think about a scuba diver, they have a tank on their back. Yeah. This one, it gets so narrow that you need to move <laughs> it, it to just, the side. It just creeps me out. Like, I can't. I No. Yeah, there's some spots where you have to take your tank off, push it ahead of you and then drag it behind you once you're through. Krista's freaking out. I, I, I would I, rather die. I believe there's also a spot in there, when I get into the, the actual description of the inside of the cave, where you actually have to turn your head a certain direction. Like You have to turn it left to right, because if it's up-down, you won't be able to get through. Oh, that so. just that makes me clench. I don't want that. Um, so to get in about Ben a little bit, um, his background, his family is from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, his mom's Patty, his dad is Shelby, and he has two brothers, Tim and Paul, and a half brother Brad. Uh, his childhood was normal in the same way as most, uh, you know, wealthy friends and neighbors would have been. Uh, when he was in his mid twenties, um, you know, he was described as being charismatic, well liked, uh, very determined. Uh, he got married. He owned a construction business, but in the late 2000s, uh, he started running into some issues. Business partner, business partner, made some mistakes in the construction company, and the U.S. economy crash kind of left him in ruins. He owed the IRS about fifty thousand dollars in taxes. Uh, he had to leave construction jobs unfinished, and was plagued by a couple other legal troubles. Uh, his marriage dissolved. And he had to sell his $450,000 home, and that had an additional $200,000 mortgage. Wow. On top of all this, he suffered an even greater blow, the death of his youngest brother, Paul. When Ben arrived at his parents' house on September 14, 2008, he found his brother unconscious and unresponsive. Uh, Paul was hospitalized immediately, uh, having a stroke he would never recover from. Paul's death, along with some other woes, caused Ben to spiral into a depression. And in April 2010, to help their son get back on track and start feeling better, his parents generously offered to support him financially by letting him move back into their vacation beach home in Florida. So relocating to Florida allowed Ben to indulge in his preferred hobby, which was scuba diving. He had first taken it up at the age of 15, practicing with his tanks in the family pool, And he had become a frequent visitor to Vortex Springs. I wonder why he didn't go for the certification.
0: Was he in the process of getting the certification to be an expert diver, or was it just he just wanted, he just liked diving and didn't want to go through the motions of getting the certification?
1: I don't know, really, either. He liked diving, he had a bunch of certificates that it seems like he forged, possibly. Oh boy. Yeah. He put a lot of his own signed he initialed and signed a lot of his own things which apparently is a (laughs) (laughs) no-no um we'll kind of get into that too i think with the theory section yeah um i suppose the day of his disappearance which was august 18th 2010 he arrived early at vortex springs uh he began the first of his three dives for that day the site closes around five or six uh but divers are allowed to dive later in the evening as long as they purchase the right kind of pass so apparently you know you go in there and say this is how many times i want to dive each dive costs x amount of dollars um and that's considered a pass you know so then they have a being a frequent you know diver there they kind of knew him they knew him really well um so they let him get away with a couple things i believe um is there somebody there like at all like if you go there late to dive is there somebody there no it seems like the day of his disappearance the two guys had closed up shop and were doing a quick dive like they would do at the end of the day Yeah and then they saw the him, him still there Yeah and they're like oh you know he's here all the time he so knows they what just he's kind doing of let him be. so they let him go Eventually they what, regret that I mean you can dive without anybody there you just can't get past that lock gate yeah. so it's like diving in a pool there's yeah. really nothing to see but he yeah got he past lock found eight, a way to get past, past that the lock, lock gate. gate Um he was seen on CCTV um, in the morning, making small talk with employees in the dive shop. Uh, and then he decided to set out on his dives. He completed two dives in the morning and early afternoon. After resurfacing from the second dive, he was seen on the CCTV again, returning to the dive shop to refill his tanks. You know, obviously you have to fill up yeah. your scuba tanks after each dive. Divers noticed that he spent much of the afternoon just sitting alongside the water testing equipment and making notes in his dive log. People, was he waiting for people to leave so he could? Exactly. People were thinking that he was waiting for the everybody to leave so he could do his dive after hours. So he could go behind the locked gate. Yep. Uh, around 6.30, Ben called home for the day, talked to his mom, and that was the last contact he ever had with his family. At 7, it's assumed he began his third and final dive into the bottom of the cavern, making his way down to the locked gate. Because diving is dangerous, it does require that key to be rented from the dive shop divers present their certification pay their fees and fill their tanks um, he did all that um, Ben was last seen by those two divers one of them was Eduardo Taran and the other was Chuck Cronin they were enjoying their relaxing dive after work like we talked about and they passed Ben they didn't think anything of it they knew that he may have been the one that was kind of tampering with the gate and getting in but there was really no proof and they were kind of thinking that um, if they let him in, there's a less possibility of him getting tangled up in the gate because it seems like you could finagle your way past the gate without even really...
0: If I remember right, from Thinking Sideways podcast, they thought it was like possible to maybe get underneath it. Yeah. Like to get on a side of it or underneath it that you could... But like, if you get wedged under there... Exactly, and that's <laughs> why they screwed, thought if, you know? if he's
1: the one that's getting... that's bypassing it yeah and if you get tangled up on it you could just sit there and nobody would and be you there and out of air yep yeah so this way they figured if they open it up and let him through there's a less likelihood of him getting tangled up in it yeah but that's to let it to, to let somebody that's not certified yeah and then he was by himself and one of the quotes from eduardo was that you know if he would have been with another person he wouldn't have had any second thoughts about it but because he was kind of by himself he had a little question as he was leaving, but it wasn't a question enough to go back and stop. yeah, yeah. stop Ben from going through. Uh, the next day, ten o'clock in the morning, Eduardo noted he came back and noted that Ben's truck was in the parking lot, but he wasn't too alarmed about it. You know, he knows that Ben was a, a frequent guy. Sometimes he'd get there before everybody else in the morning and make notes in his dive book and kind of just practice what he was going to be doing for the day. Um, they knew that they were going to be busy that day. It was hot. They always had swimmers, campers, and hikers. Um, Eduardo, when he pulled up and noticed Ben's car was there, he's like, oh, Ben's here. You know, just another day. He was there so frequently, sometimes doing those three dives in a day. Uh, he became a fixture at the place, so it wasn't strange for Ben to be back so many times. The second day, Eduardo arrived and noticed that the car was, or his truck was still in the same spot. So at this point, it's been two days. He asked a couple people if they noticed uh, if Ben was around yesterday and nobody said that they saw mm-hmm. him. But the one thing that I think is kind of strange is that although a whole day was gone where nobody noticed him, there was really no, nobody noticed him in the cave. Nobody noticed him outside of the cave. It's so like a whole day went past and nobody noticed that he wasn't around. So it's like the second day is when the police finally get called. Were there people that went into that locked section of the... Uh, I'm assuming. It doesn't say, but I have to assume it was a day like no other. You know, just
0: Did people go behind that locked sec- uh, section of the cave a lot? I mean, like on a daily basis?
1: That's a good question. I, I don't know. I would assume it's fairly popular that enough people would have been scuba diving that... Say somebody went in there. Say Ben went in there. Two days. I mean, you would assume somebody would have gone behind that locked gate. Yeah, if he went in there about 7 o'clock at night, a whole day went past the next day, and then the morning, so, you know, a whole 24-hour span of people being possibly around and nobody nobody noticed them. So law enforcement was contacted, and the family began to putting together teams of recovery divers to see if they could uh, locate and, you know, if he was in there, retrieve Ben's body. So while they were waiting for the police to arrive, Eduardo decided to suit up and see if he could go in there and find Ben. Uh, Eduardo went as far as he could after he volunteered to dive down and didn't find anything. So I guess at this point, the cave system, you kind of need to know a little bit about. Um, So what I found was an account of a diver. It's kind of a long quote and it's more of a description. So I'll just start quote. This is a buoyed line of nylon rope floating from the surface of the spring leading down to the bottom of the basin. Past a warning sign, untrained divers to keep out of the entrance of the large cavern on the southwest side. The large cavern doesn't seem to have a specific name, so I'll refer to it as the main cavern. This would be right after you get past that lockade. Uh, swimming through the back of the main cavern where natural light can no longer reach, is where a diver will find the cave's entrance, a tunnel leading into total darkness. (laughs) (laughs) A common misconception is that the underwater gates block the cave entrance, but the mouth of the cave is actually located at the back of the main cavern, about 58 feet deep. This is where the stop sign with the Grim Reaper warns inexperienced divers to stay out. It says, quote, There's nothing in this cave worth dying for. Continuing past the signs, a diver would find one of the cave's larger rooms called the Piano Room. It's named because of the interesting sounds divers' exhaled breath creates inside the room. That's interesting. Kind of creepy, too. Yeah, that is kind of creepy. The passage continues deeper, flattening out a bit as a diver approaches the gate. The gate is about 115 feet below the surface, and it's made out of welded rebar. The door is located in the middle, and it opens from the left side. It's adorned with a few signs from previous divers as well as a flag to indicate the water flow. The first restriction, which we talked about earlier, the restrictions. This is the first one. It's right after the gate, tightening to a hole just four to five feet wide and three feet tall. The diver would dive down through that small hole, entering a small room. Above and to the right is a vertical fissure in the rock, and down to the left is a dead end called no way. So that would be one of your first turns. You can't go anywhere. It's just a dead end. yeah. Pushing past this fissure and the no way comes to the second restriction. This one is called the back mount squeeze. It's a long, (laughs) flat passage. sounds bad (laughs) already. Anything squeeze. It's described as back to belly. This long restriction is just tall enough to accommodate a diver and their gear. A diver could try to squeeze, squeeze through the back with back mounted tanks, though most will use side mounted tanks in order to fit better. In this second restriction, divers will use a specialized tool that kind of looks like a dumbbell, which helps sink into the sand as a handle for dragging and pulling their body and gear through the low ceiling. (laughs) Not in a million years. Uh, Out of that second tiring restriction, a diver would arrive at a space called the T-Room. Looking up, a diver would see a nearly vertical opening into an area called the Max Headroom. That's a fun play on words since the room allows the divers to get more upright and finally off their belly. If the diver looks downward, they'll see a drop into the third restriction. So, you say you know to kind of go back, you go in through this gate. Yeah. Then you go into what is the first restriction, and there's just you, one dead-end branch yep, off of that. And then you go down, and you you know you keep kind of going down. There's not a whole lot of left or rights, just downs. So the third restriction is called the champagne bottleneck. It's a long, skinny tube so small that divers are forced to remove their tanks and gear and push it through the opening first before squeezing down in after it. (laughs) No way in hell. Uh, A spring flows out like a fizzy drink coming out of a bottle, so that's why it's called the champagne bottleneck. Uh, Divers have to work hard against the current as they slide their bodies down the long tube. Because the opening is so small, the current can be more intense than in other parts of the cave. So Which also makes have, sense. Yep. I mean, you also have to think that there's going to be a current that's kind that's of pushing you against it's you. working and...
0: against you while you're pulling yourself forward Yep. in a tight bottleneck. I just got to say, I wouldn't call this place like that, a ball ground. No, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm like getting like anxious just, just listening to this. Yeah. They probably heard it. I think you can hear Krista, if you didn't hear, Krista said that she wouldn't even go into something like this above
1: ground, much less underwater. Um, The passage doesn't get much bigger once you're past the third restriction. A diver would find another little pocket of room about four feet wide and three feet tall to collect themselves and prepare for the final push, which is the fourth restriction. The diver will have to shed any gear taller than 20 centimeters, bringing only their eight inch wide tanks with them. Ahead, they would see rocky, a rocky cylindrical ceiling sloping down the sides into the sandy bottom. This 15 footish long horizontal stretch requires the diver to crawl along on their belly again. This section of the cave is more often compared to trying to crawl under a car or under a bed in full scuba gear. God, <laughs> that's nuts. As the diver prepares to move forward into the fourth restriction, the height clearance drops to only 12 inches. Shrinking to only about three feet wide. How can you even go, th- go through that? You kind of just have to force yourself through. Yuck. No. I know you guys were talking about Josh Gates on the last episode. Yeah, in that episode him. with the uh, Ark of the Covenant where he yeah. was like wedging himself through that cavern. And if you think that, you know, you're kind of still available. Here you're underwater. You know, if anything goes wrong, you're stuck there. <laughs> That's crazy. You, know, you at least have people around. If you yeah. were to go in there by yourself. You can get stuck, sure, but underwater, it just makes everything like even more freaky. Once you get to the fourth restriction, you will not be able to turn around unless you can fit all the way through the fourth restriction. So once you start going, you're screwed. Yep. I mean, you have, once you start going, you have to... Uh, yep, if you cannot fit through or get stuck, they will have to navigate their way out of the fourth. Why would they even have this open for people to go into?
0: I don't understand that. I don't either. It's not my cup of tea no I mean I can't even imagine a scuba diver being thrilled with that I don't know I don't know I wouldn't do it no I would like someplace (laughs) nice and open like like, a pool yeah like Krista said I wouldn't even do that above ground
1: much less underwater with a tank um if they do get stuck in there it seems like they have to try to go backwards um (laughs) and that is hoping that they don't get snagged on any jagged rocks that are coming from above as well (laughs) I'm gonna have nightmares tonight and then you also have to worry about below you if you kick up any of the silt or sand. Uh, it can cause visibility to drop to zero. So imagine being stuck, not being able to see, and if you start backing out, you can get stuck on rocks that are coming oh, up from above. I don't want to imagine that ever. Uh, the ceiling clearance at that point then drops down to only 10 inches, and the width of the package shrinks to two and a half feet wide. By carefully creeping forward, the passage tightens to its smallest which is only two feet wide and eight inches tall. How can you,
0: have people like gone in there? Sure. How? I mean, eight inches is
1: really small. I mean, they have divers that are, you know, the best of the best and even the best in the state of Florida, the best in whatever state you're in. You decide to go there for a vacation. I have a question. I don't know if you want to save this for theories. Go ahead these fissures
0: that were, like, in the roof, the ceiling of the... Could If he died, would his could his body have floated up into one of those fissures, or is it not like that?
1: No, well, It's like that. I just think that the, none of the fissures go deep enough where you would be able to look up and not see. Not see a body. Yeah, okay. so if you have a flashlight, you'd be able to look up and be like, oh, there's nobody there up there. There's nothing yeah. up there. Okay, okay. Where were we here? So carefully creeping forward, the passage tightens to its smallest, which was only two feet <laughs> wide by eight inches. To help picture that... Stretch your fingers as wide as they go. The distance from your pinky fingertip across your hand to the thumb tip is eight inches. The average human head is wider than eight, inch, eight inches, so a diver would have to carefully turn their head sideways as oh. they slowly pull through. <laughs> that is insane. If a diver were to have found Ben's body in or beyond the fourth restriction, the recovery diver would also have to have carried Ben, who is six foot one. Between 210 and 220. How could you even retrieve a body out of there? And all of his gear. Yeah. You'd have to navigate yourself through. Plus <laughs> six a six-foot body yep. with with a tank. Uh, all while being 170 feet deep in cold water, and then squeezing their body along with Ben's back through every restriction we talked about in possible zero visib- visibility situations. Try not to get theirs nor Ben's gear snangled or tag- tangled all the way, it's so tight and dangerous that very few divers who have made it all the way past a fourth, they can be counted on your fingers. I believe that. So. I, I yeah. I and mean, I, you have to be small and skinny and uh, just why? I I don't know. Okay. I mean, it, it does sound like not a whole lot of people have went in there, but it must be one of those kind of like holy grail kind of things where yeah, it, if where you're good you did it. Yeah, you can say you did it. Yeah, like. I made it through the Vortex Springs, and all I got was a lousy T-shirt. Yeah, exactly. Uh, once you make it through that teeny tiny choke point, it does open up to another room. It's been dubbed the Trash Room, and it's just big enough for two divers to fit, to turn around and make their way back out. Uh, it's called the Trash Room because some divers that have made it there left some stuff behind. I don't know if it's like garbage or just like gear. Be a good place to put a geocache. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Um, beyond that is what people call the fifth restriction, although it's not actually part of the cave. It's just called the end of the line. It's a fissure, which is like a crack, and it can't be explored any further. A smaller driver, diver could try to get in there. But, but you're not going anywhere. You're not, you're not going to find anything past that. It's just a crack. It'd be like going into like a closet, turning around, yeah. coming back out. Uh, it doesn't open up to any other rooms, and it would be physically impossible to turn around, even if you were a contortionist. Um, it's about six inches wide. So that's basically the description of the cave from front to back. And then, obviously, if you made it into that fourth restriction, you would have to come all the way back out.
0: Yeah, but it so, sounds like there's no place to go for no. a body to go.
1: Uh, so now we get into the search. Um, because of the cave and the technical aspects, uh, police divers didn't have any of the kind of training you no. would need to get in there. <laughs>
0: Just guessing that you almost have to have specialists come in to...
1: Yeah, and that's what they ended up having to do. Um, They thought tons of divers, whether amateur or professional, would be jumping to volunteer. They didn't get anybody (laughs) willing to do it. Would be jumping to volunteer. Um, The diving experience required to search any underwater cave, let alone one this dangerous, is extensive. The police contacted a diver by the name of Jeff Laughlin asking for his help. He was a qualified cave recovery diver. Uh, Jeff sent messages to different dive shops seeing if he could get eight or so more experienced recovery divers. Um eventually found a couple. So Jeff became the lead diver and they made a couple teams to be able to go in and look. Uh the first physical evidence found were the stage tanks. These were tanks of air that you're gonna need to decompress. Yeah. You know, one thing we didn't talk about is once you dive this deep, you have to spend so much time Where you get the bends. under the yeah, yeah, under the water. Yep. Um, anywhere from a half hour to 45 minutes before you can actually surface so these tanks were staged uh, right before the gate so you could come out and then he'd spend you know a little bit more time uh, waiting to decompress so the tanks were just waiting there for yep. for people to yep. use okay. they, they were definitely his tanks um his name was on it oh so okay they found so the he tanks. left his tanks there yep so okay. so at he, this point you're starting to think well
0: his tanks a, are there yeah so he went into the the gated area
1: yep Oh yeah, because it was a complicated dive, he had these extra tanks to make sure that he had enough air for decompression, any potential emergencies that could arise. Um, His tanks were mismatching. So like the condition, one was like almost kind of brand new, one was a little beat up and bent. And later we'll talk about one of them only at half the amount of air. So there's a little bit of a question as to, did he use some of it or did he just not fill it fully? Yeah. You know, that's one of those things that'll never be, never probably be answered. Um, some of the divers that were there, obviously the diver community is kind of a small community. Yeah. You know, so they knew that there was this one guy who was like what you would consider the best diver in the world. Uh, his name is Ed Sorensen. Uh, he's probably the best cave and recovery diver. He used a underwater scooter. I don't know if you've seen that. It's one of those things you hold onto and it has like a fan. So it, Pulls you through the water instead of you having to use all your strength. Okay, now I know what you're talking about. Yep. Sometimes you'll see him like underwater, like shows boats and stuff. Uh, He brought that and he used that to get to the back of the cave, thinking that would give him more time. You know, because basically with air, you're limited the amount of time you can search. With this, he gets in there quicker. He can spend more time searching. He had to bring his smaller tanks so he could squeeze through all those restrictions. He went all the way to the end of the line fissure, which is the very back one that's not even yeah. a restriction. It's just that fissure in the back. Um, at the time, he was the third person ever to explore that fire. Wow. Uh, he found no marks in the rocks. He found no scratches in the ceiling from, like, tanks hitting it, or um, I bl- believe most divers have, like, a knife. He didn't find any scratches or cuts anything like that none of the silt seemed to be disturbed so at this point he didn't find any evidence that indicating that ben would be into the cave this far so he removed his tanks uh, to push himself into the fourth restriction thinking that there's no way ben made it this far if there was no evidence he was even into that third restriction Uh, he said that ben could never have gone this far all the reco- recovery divers began dropping out when Sorensen declared that he didn't believe Ben was in the cave. If he's the best underwater diver in the world, he makes it all the way through, yeah. sees there's no evidence that Ben's there. He didn't obviously find Ben's body. All the other divers are like, if Ed can't find him and he's made it all the there. way into the back, yeah, he's, not there's, there. he's just
0: not there. I mean, they're not just looking for the body. I mean, he's got his equipment
1: with him too. So there'd be tanks. His Yeah, scuba suits. His yeah, tanks. Yep. Yep. All yep. that kind of stuff. I believe there's even a shovel. That most of them carry wow uh so the search kind of stopped um and then the family became frustrated that the divers weren't searching so they asked if anybody else had a like an rov it's like a re- remotely operated vehicle that yeah. they could go in there and look with a camera yep yep uh the holmes county police department had one but they said they weren't willing to lose it or have it broken or destroyed seriously yeah unless it's kind of a dick move <laughs> unless the family paid fifty four thousand dollars wow that's a dick move so because they were replaced you know if it had to be replaced because it got lost yeah or damaged, but you're looking for i get it but i, I see both sides yeah you know yeah. as a family i want to be able to do nothing more than find my my son but at the same time the or county, your brother or your brother yeah and the, <laughs> the you know, And the county uh, is like, ah, we're not just going to let it out or lend it out to anybody. Uh, The family agreed, but the ROV did not get any better results than the divers that went in there. So after that failed, the parents decided they would look to see if they could find the person who originally mapped the cave. And his name is Steve Keen. Um, He was the first person to map it. He went all the way back to the end of the line fissure. Uh, He made seven dives. Into the deepest parts of the cave. And just like Ed Sorensen, he didn't find anything that indicated that Ben was anywhere around the cave. Weird. So, in total, 16 divers spent 36 straight days looking for Ben's body in the cave with no results. Volunteer searches continued afterwards at the spring and surrounding areas through November often with the McDaniels and Ben's girlfriend in attendance.
0: I think I know what one of the theories is going to be, but I'm not going to say it until you actually get to
1: the theories. It'll be coming up shortly. Okay. <laughs> All right. So with everything else, there's a little bit of a controversy. Um, with every idea going bust that the parents were able to use, they thought they would put out a reward to anyone brave enough, quote-unquote brave enough, <laughs> To venture into this cave to find Ben. But why? I mean,
0: there's been how many expert divers in there? What is somebody... I guess they always think that somebody will have a different I know, look. I know, I I get that. But if these other divers didn't find anything, I don't think anybody brave enough to go in there is going to find anything.
1: Well, I think that's where the controversy kicks in because if you put money on something, you're going to get people that just want to come the money. In And yeah. they're not going to be the best divers in the world. So this offended the diving community who begged Ben's parents to rescind. Um, no one took them up on their $10,000 offer. But then, what do you think the McDaniels did? They upped it to $30,000. Oh, Jeez. Krista got that one <laughs> right. Yep, Krista was putting her thumb Krista up. Like, her thumb up he, keep going up. Cranked it up. Um, this enraged the diving community even more. Um, after an inexperienced, uncertified diver drowned in part of the cave that he was not qualified to be in possibly looking to claim the reward oh boy there's yeah. no guarantee that he was in there for that for that because the you know obviously he's dead yeah. there was no notes he didn't talk to any family member saying i'm going in there. but to it look sounds for ben. like that's what he was doing that's what you can infer that he went in there yeah. looking for ben to get yep. you this thirty thousand dollars
0: i get both you know i get both viewpoints i get that the family wants to do anything they can to find some trace but i also get that the divers are mad because this is going to cause people to risk their lives needlessly.
1: You know, yeah. I mean, you look even in comparing it to something positive like Forrest Fenn's treasure. Yeah, you have There's people that are people are, looking are dying for looking yes, for that. That's true. That's true. So it's like then that's out in the open. Granted, you're out in either the desert or the wilderness, and you could fall. Yeah, but this is underwater, and yep. you have people that are vastly unqualified trying to find his body. Yeah, after this guy had died, uh, Ben's parents were contacted by Jill Heinearth. She is considered the best female cave diver in the world and is known for doing a lot of underwater documentaries. She hoped that filming the entire dive all the way back, um, this would be able to prove to the parents. that there's That's a good idea, that there's nothing there. Um, So Jill had a diving buddy, I believe, which is her ex-husband, Paul. Um, They made it all the way to the very back. They found a shovel. So they kind of thought, well, you know, other people had missed this. So we found a shovel. Yeah. This could be a good sign. Uh, come to find out, the shovel turned out to be Steve Keens. He was the original guy that, <laughs> that, looked, that mapped that, the cave. Yeah, that, ma- that mapped the cave. And that he said that this was his, and obviously I believe it had some kind of name or inscription yeah. that it was his. Um, so then doing the research process for this documentary, uh, she went back to Ben's dive logs, and he had some maps that he made of the cave system she realized that he had, had, in fact, gotten pretty far into the cave based on some of his notes and the maps. Um, knowing that divers in trouble will often burrow deeper into narrow crevices such as, those, such as those within the cave in a mistaken effort to get back to the surface, she kind of revised her opinion. She said that she simply sees no reasonable evidence that he is not in the cave. So she originally thought there's no way in hell he's in here and then looking at his dive notes looking at all the that he's been able to get back there yep looking at the fact that he was able to get back there she now believes he's in there somewhere that there's no way that he's not in there but where would he be that's the thing i mean there's there's only so many places and all these people could not have missed him yeah that i don't know she must think that there's some place that you know is he under the silt is he, you know? But can you get under that amount of silt in that little span of time? I don't know. I doubt it. You know, like she unless said... he was
0: panicking and like flailing around and kicked up silt and then got covered in silt. But still, that's that's a lot of. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. would think if you died, you would float. And I would think, but that's some what of made that me gear... wonder if he wasn't in one of those crevices that are in the ceiling. Yeah. But, but the, you say you die. Are you gonna f- float in the exact position to go into that crevice, or would you? You know, would you go
1: vertically or horizontally if you floated yeah, would you and like died bang up? against the top of the I walls know. until you found a spot? I don't know. I don't know how that works. I don't either. know how that works either. It's um, disturbing so to think about. Around the area, you know, they did bring in cadaver dogs. You know, obviously, the dogs can't go into the cave. I was just gonna
0: say, <laughs> <laughs> they put a little <laughs> mask on the dogs. On and a little Yeah. <laughs>
1: Um, so they were brought to search any outbuildings, you know, near the water, campgrounds and woods, and uh, there are some opposing statements as to what training the dogs had, um, as to whether they actually would alert on anything or not. Apparently some of the dogs did alert, but at the water's edge, you know, what exactly are they alerting at? Are they cadaver dogs? Are they scent tracking dogs? You know, there's two different opinions as to whether or not the dogs were actually... A, worthwhile, and B, if they did find anything or not. Oh, they're worthwhile. They're doggies. They're always oh, they're worthwhile. Doggos. So they also searched his home. Um, they found some more of Ben's maps of the cave, some more notes, calculations, diving logs, uh, those kinds of things. Um, all seem to point to Ben being a very capable diver, but one of the disconcerting oddities that they found was that during Ben's like lead-up to this dive, some of his uh, logbooks were described as being neat and tidy but then towards the end where he started making more notes they became super messy oh boy it's like he was difficult having a to read or... and i think that's what they're inferring is that you know everything was nice and legible and clean and then the days leading up to this dive they were hard to read um several mistakes were in there and stuff like that in in you know, an opposing viewpoint of that. Like last night,
0: I was looking at my, remember I used to have this notebook for our podcast that I used to bring. It had It's like a journal. It had all my notes in it. And I was looking through it last night. And when we started the podcast and I was writing down topic ideas, I started really neat. And then as it got further, I'm just scrawling, you know. So I can kind of get that, that maybe he wanted to keep it neat. And then after a while, he's just like, eh, just do whatever. But that almost sounds more like some kind of break psychotic break but Uh, it sounds i don't know i think that's what they're getting at yeah Um,
1: yeah okay he did start taking several classes you know you mentioned that earlier like was he trying to get his certifications but that's what i
0: can't wrap my mind around is if he's a good enough diver why is he not going through the proper procedures but even if he did i don't think that would
1: have changed this from happening necessarily so he never finished them. no he would take classes and he would never finish so he would never get his certifications yeah Um, He was detailing new skills he was learning, but he was rushing through them at a breakneck speed. So he would be learning something in his classes. He'd go out and rush and try to do it you know, 100 times to get down, but he never continued on with the classes to actually get his certification. Um, He did log an insane amount of dives in a very short period of time. Um, During a four-month time frame, he logged over 250 dives, meaning he had to average two to three dives every day. Wow. How many? two to three dives every day that's 250 kind of a, dives it's kind of a lot of dives in a day and if you think of it if he took any days off like he went back home to visit family or took a vacation whatever, he would need to make up more dives to be able to get to that yeah. 250 yeah. number yep um and it says completing 250 dives usually takes a recreational diver years to complete and he had it done in a four-month period oh. um he had a binder full of temporary certification cards Many were from classes he didn't complete, and many of them were in his own handwriting, <laughs> possibly using these as temporary cards of proof experience for job requirements. I guess I get that. So, you know, he did yeah. finish it, but yeah. he was able to print out a certification. He'd yep. sign it himself and submit it to whoever he needed to to be like, yeah, I have the certification. That's it. So we're at theories. Anything you want to talk about before we get into the first theory? Uh, no. I just... Krista, cheap seats. (laughs) Nothing. All right, so theory one. Ben drowned. He potentially panicked when he was in the furthest reaches of the cave, and his body and gear are wedged in some possible crevice... I just can't see that. ...buried in sand or where it remains hidden. I just can't
0: see that. I can't see expert divers not finding him.
1: So when we talked about the cave, um, we remember that he's 6'1", so he's bigger than average. Yeah. I think 5'11 is probably He's like my height because I'm a little over 6'1". Okay. And uh, Chuck Cronin, the, one of the two divers that led him through the very first night he went missing, um, said that although he had the proper equipment and had considerable diving knowledge, he often appeared very overconfident in his abilities and was never shy about saying so. Yeah. That opinion was shared by uh, several posters on a scuba diving website called scubaboard.com. Uh, some of them who also had met Ben during trips. Um, and in one 2014 comment by his father, he could not find anyone at Vortex Spring willing to be his dive partner. So he always went alone yeah. because he was kind of a cocky, kind of cocky and arrogant. and he was and, better and, yeah. than everybody else. Yep. Um, his parents later defended him from those criticisms By seeing them as positive traits. Ben was brave, his father later said. Ben was fearless. He always followed his passions. So I think that's the likely theory going out is that he went in for some reason. You just can't find Find his body. Uh second theory was Ben committed suicide by purposefully squeezing into its tight space. That search divers could not go or would not go, knowing he would never be able to get back out, which doesn't seem likely if he had his spare tanks. Exactly, I was just going to say that waiting he, for him. Yeah, if he had this, if he had that spare tank waiting by the
0: gate for him, that doesn't make a lot of sense unless he wanted people to find right. that to not.
1: Maybe he wanted to go out on a mystery like this. I don't know. Uh, Divers, when they went in, also searched for any signs of Ben's body decomposing. So as grisly as it sounds. It um, makes sense. Though chilly, 69 degrees Fahrenheit is warm enough for decomposition to occur, and that's the temperature on average in the cave. A body would go through a process of rigor mortis around 12 hours after death, then would go limp, wrinkle, turn a blotchy green-black, bloat, float, possibly get scavenged by animals in the cave with the leftover remains of the gear returning back to the cave floor. Yeah, Yeah. that's... Uh, The cold, deep, dark freshwater plus Ben's wetsuit and other gear would have slowed decomposition a bit, but even in this chilly water, there would have been apparent signs of decomposition in the cave. Yeah. So the freshwater spring is also home to wildlife, including carp, bluegills, bass, koi, and eels. The eels who inhabit the dark cave are carnivorous, uh, but have never been a dangerous uh, thing to humans. Swimming, they can be friendly, um, even particularly when divers bring little cans of Vienna sausages for the eels. (laughs) Apparently that was something (laughs) that... that was a thing. That was a thing.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. Uh,
1: Another kind of gross thing is that the recovery divers explained that the release of gases and fluids during decomposition are noticeable through their regulators yikes yeah so breathing in some of that water would be there you know you'd get some of that decon and apparently it's a pretty noticeable i i
0: have when we worked at the grocery store uh in the back room if there would have if there was a mouse that had died under the the boards in the back you could smell it a mile away because it's a really distinct like a
1: rotting animal is a really distinct smell yeah they described it as unpleasant an unpleasant odor or taste Uh, none of the divers (laughs) detected that and over 30 tests were done in the water by a lab. They took water samples. Throughout all 36 days of the search, somebody took a water sample. Uh, the tests looked for bacteria produced from decomposition, but all the tests came back negative. Wow. I just think even if he decomposed, his equipment would have been
0: found. Yeah, Krista just said, if you couldn't hear her, she said that she thinks even if he did decompose, his equipment would have been found, which,
1: you know, I totally agree with. So theory number three, Ben faked his own death by making it disappear or making it appear like he drowned in the cave, but it actually exited the water safely, leaving all of his old trouble behind. I get that. I can. I totally do get that. So Ben's truck was still obviously in the parking lot. Um, it was a three-quarter ton black pickup truck. It contained his wallet, phone, driver's license, and either eleven hundred dollars in cash or seven hundred, depending on the report. <laughs> Uh, The family says that it's $1,100. That's a lot of money to just have. Exactly. And nothing in around his truck suggested foul play, but the truck was in the same parking spot from late Wednesday night when Ben was seen until Friday morning when he was reported missing. So did Ben's brother's death weigh on him, the financial tolls? Was this something that he wanted to do and picked this day and this way to go? Just to fake his own de- To
0: kill himself or to fake, fake his to own fake death? To fake his own death. It makes sense. It does make sense that, I mean,
1: if you're going to do it, that's kind of a good way to do it. Would you take $1,100 I don't know. You, I or don't would know. you say leaving it behind would be a Leaving good... it behind would make you
0: question whether or not he faked his own death. You know, maybe he took nothing and started, but, you know, I think we've talked about this in other episodes, faking your own death is harder than you think it is, especially with, with technology these days and... And you know, not surveillance, but being able to be tracked and stuff like that.
1: Was that one of the ones you mentioned in the famous Maura Murray? It might have been mentioned famous in the famous Maura episode. he been declared legally dead? I do not know. If I he's would have been decal- declared so. legally dead. This was 2010, so you figure probably a year's worth of yeah. searching. I don't know what the time frame is. The f- this seriously to me, this sounds
0: like the most logical. Like, I don't get his body not being found. I don't understand that.
1: Theory four was Ben fell victim to some sort of foul play during or after his dive. His body was hidden, either inside or outside somewhere, for nefarious reasons. So a private investigator the McDaniels hired believed that the body may have been removed prior to any authorities being contacted, or that he may have even been murdered on land, and the narrative of his disappearance fabricated as a cover story. Uh, The family believes that the suspicious, supposedly accidental death of the Vortex Spring owner, Lowell Kelly, in late 2011 is related to the case. That's weird. Lowell Kelly was the owner of Vortex Springs at the time of Ben's disappearance. He was facing criminal charges. He had allegedly taken a temporary employee who he said owed him thousands of dollars out into an isolated wooded area and attempted to beat him with a baseball bat to make him pay up. <laughs> wow. The man escaped, and prosecutors later charged Kelly with assault and kidnapping for the incident. Kelly de- got rid of the charges by pleading no contest, and in return he was fined and sentenced to seven years of probation. Uh, during a chilly cookoff he was hosting at Vortex Spring in December, he pr- reportedly fell down a set of stairs and hurt his head. Person that was present took him to his home in Ponce de Leon, Florida, uh, where he helped Kelly shower, which is kind of weird. That's kind of weird. And afterwards, put a blanket over him and left him to rest in the bathtub. Also kind of weird. In the morning, a different person came to the house and found his condition had worsened overnight. And which guy is this? This is the owner of Vortex So this is Springs. the guy that went all Negan on that guy with the Correct. baseball bat.
0: yep. That's weird.
1: Um, emergency medical services responded to the call, took him to a hospital in Pensacola, Florida. He remained comatose, and after his condition did not approve, he was transferred to hospice, where he died a follow a few weeks later. The Holmes County Sheriff's Office, which had also been investigating Ben's disappearance, implied that it had not gotten the full story of what occurred the night of Kelly's injury uh, with him falling down at that chilly cook-off. I get
0: the, I mean, I get the bathtub thing because if you think the guy's going to vomit, maybe don't have him yeah, laying on his back in bed. It well, doesn't yeah, say whether yeah.
1: the water was in the tub. It just says he was found in the tub. I'm, a,
0: so. I'm assuming he was just laying in the tub that, you know, if you're going to worry that the guy's going to vomit and choke, maybe prop him up in the tub. So he's, I don't know. I've never showered a unconscious <sighs> guy. or No. <laughs> um.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, call 911. It's it's weird that they didn't. They did not release the name names of the individuals who helped him either at night or in the morning, which is kind of strange that people inquired and they said, we're not going to tell you who it was, especially with Florida. You know, the sun, sunshine laws in Florida, that anything that's a public document yeah. can be given to the public freely or whatever. So it's weird that they refused to release. They also refused to release the autopsy report, which is surprising for florida as well um so it might just be one of those things that you know you correlate one or the other but what, how do they think this can this guy connects to ben that's the thing they think that maybe ben owed him money as well and he killed ben and he killed ben and disposed of the body somewhere or he realized that ben was breaking the rules of the vortex springs and maybe emboldening a few other people to bypass yeah and he didn't want more deaths on his hands so he killed him so i that's <laughs> I mean, that's that's just i i i i just can't
0: jump i mean to get granted the guy with the baseball bat and all that i just can't make that jump from him doing
1: that to yeah. being a i mean if he's willing to bash somebody in the head and like yeah. for not getting paid um and just one last thing um eduardo Terran, the guy that let ben in the cave pass a lie detector test okay so obviously so he guys... was down there ben was yep. down there so that's the end
0: that's weird um, i mean i don't i remember listening to thinking sideways and i don't know i i honestly think some kind of foul play is like the most likely but i can see it faking your own death but you would think that he would have turned up i mean
1: i don't know yeah, uh, I mean, the last one seems less likely the where murder, the murder. murder, you know, I could see him restarting his life somewhere else, but he was so close to his family. He had a girlfriend yeah. and I guess it doesn't always necessarily matter because you have people that do it almost daily. You know, the fact that he's not found in the cave, I guess that's where I would lean is that he's in there somewhere, but everything that, that but it's, I've it's, read said that or listened to, you know, several podcasts talk about it. There's an awesome thread on Reddit. Um, it's like five parts deep. That's where I got a lot of the information from between that and Wikipedia. So do they know if his backup
0: tank, the tank that – or the spare tank that you leave at the gate, did he use any of that after well, that, when he was went of, past the gate? Did he come back? Does that
1: show that he That came- might be one of the reasons why one of them is half full, but – It could have also just Just been because he thought it was – or maybe the gauge was off and he thought it was full. we don't
0: really know if he came back. Yeah, and there's no way to
1: determine whether that was the new tank or the old tank that had a – you know it was kind of bashed up a little bit. Maybe the regulator – or not the regulator, the the gauge showed that it was full and it was only half full. Yeah. But it's possible he came back, he used another half tank or switched out. Um, There's also some question as to why he used – it was a Trimix. I think that's like a, a mixture, mixture of different gases yeah. and not air. And this one was simply air. And they said that seemed a little weird that it would be air and not the Trimix. Um, Unless he went down there and put that as a decoy. And then,
0: you know, so they wouldn't think that he faked his own death. But I could also see, like, the situation where he comes up from diving and the owner is there and he's pissed. The owner's pissed because he went behind the gate when he wasn't supposed to and the owner gets in an altercation with him and act- accidentally kills him and hides the body. Yeah, it's kind of like one of those locked doors. It is. It's a, like a cause... locked door mystery. Like, I have no idea. I, I lean towards Faked
1: His Own Death because that's... You know, one of the comments on the Reddit thing was maybe he did die, and because there's such a slight force of water um, coming out of the cave over the course of a couple of hours... His body made it through whatever. Maybe he was back through that first restriction. He was just in the you know, the first room. And his body was able to float out, worked past that gate, worked out through the U shaped kind of pond. And I don't know where exactly it goes. Maybe it goes into a river. Maybe yeah. it just stops right there. Yeah. That that makes sense. But it just seems like it's, it's so perfect, slow yeah, of a, like a perfect storm of being able to w- make his way out of that. And the one thing I could never find out was, did anybody go in there that whole day that he was missing? Yeah. Because you know, he went in I at wish, night, was that, found That would answer two a lot of questions later. if
0: we knew if somebody went in there that whole yeah. day that he was missing. So, so what do you think happened? What's your guess? My guess he's in there.
1: I, I know it's hard to fathom, but I just don't think his, I think his life was bad. He lost a lot of money, but he seemed to be making an upturn. Yeah, He liked scuba diving it was like his passion so to think he would give it up you know and the family doesn't believe it and for the most part it I doesn't believe the like family it bad enough for a fake your own death yeah and like the the murder of him and disposing of the body no. is least likely i think he's in the cave
0: krista i feel like he would have been found yeah krista's like what? me i feel like he would have been found or some trace of him would have been found especially the decomposition in the water that's yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, there is a disappeared episode. The TV show disappeared. Uh, it's called the Vortex. Um, it's from March nineteenth, twenty twelve. That's a good one. That uh, female diver did do that documentary. Document <laughs> documentary about uh, her trip through the cave. Um, that's also available. I didn't see it. I couldn't find it anywhere. Um, but it's out there if anybody wants to look any more into it and like i said there's a great thread on reddit uh just type in ben mcdaniel it's like a five parter and then all the comments that go with it so
0: super good job that was a good case i mean i remember being fascinated with that i'm thinking sideways and i kind of wanted to do that for the podcast so very good pick very good choice all right very good job Corey. uh my job my job my uh topic that i was going to do this was originally going to be a backup episode a couple people have mentioned it in the strangers group and my story is the story of the watcher's house yeah krista gave that a big thumbs up she's excited about that it's probably not going to be very long because there's kind of not a whole lot about it considering that it's more it's a more recent case i was kind of surprised I know, so do I. I was when it was going on, I was following it and it's like it's just crazy. So I got m- a majority of this information out of a really good article from the November 12th, 2018 issue of New York magazine. So here we go. In June of 2014, Derek and Maria Broadus purchased a 1905 six-bedroom Dutch colonial revival house for $1.4 million for themselves and their three children. That's a lot for a house. The house was located at 657 Boulevard in Westfield, New Jersey. Three days after closing on the house, a letter showed up in the mail. The letter read, and now here, there's a lot of bits and pieces of the letters. Like, I never get to see what the entire letter looks like.
1: So there's no transcription of, like, the full there, letter? There's
0: transcriptions, but I've never seen a full transcription of the letters. Hmm. So I'm assuming that this is the full transcription of the first one, but there were like two more letters received, and I'm, there's like bits and pieces of them floating around, so not 100% sure. But the letter read, quote, "'Dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming.' My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s and my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. I see already that you have flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it was supposed to be. Tisk tisk tisk. Bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. You have children. I have seen them. So far, I think there are three that I have counted. Are there more on the way? Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family, or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. Who am I? There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I am in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I am in one. Look out any of the many windows in Six Fifty Seven Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. Welcome, my friends. Welcome. Let the party begin.
1: Signed, Watcher. So right there, it's that's it. Yep, that's a big old nope. It's just weird how he keeps referencing Six Fifty Seven. I know. Like, instead I, of just name. saying your house or the house, yeah, he...
0: Six Fifty Seven Boulevard. And the young blood stuff is. <laughs> it's bizarre and scary like i i the whole time i'm i'm researching this i literally can't imagine what this would be like you know like like just like a feeling of always
1: wondering if you're being watched and stuff i don't know it's just you can't chalk it up to a prank it sounds so specific personal it sounds like specific and personal well it's weird that he said his grandfather was watching in the 20s his father was watching in the 60s and now it's my time And now it's his time but there's like a longer break between the 60s and his time yep so it's only a 40 year mark yeah and then now it's almost a 55 year mark yeah so
0: it is kind of weird so when you buy a new house this isn't something that you want to get in the mail And I mean, it was like three days after closing on the house, which is, you know. So as you can imagine, Derek and Maria were pretty freaked out. They weren't living in the house yet, but they were already concerned about security issues. That night, from their old house, they emailed John and Andrea Woods, who they bought the house at 657 Boulevard from. They told them about the letter and asked if they knew anything about it. Andrea mailed back that, a few days before moving out, they had received a letter from someone named Watcher who had said something about watching the house for years, but they threw the letter away thinking it was a joke. The family went to the police about the letter and were told not to mention it to any of the neighbors since someone living within view of the house was the most likely suspect. The family was extremely on edge whenever they came to check out the new house, but especially when they brought their young children. If the children wandered too far in the backyard, Maria would call them back to the house. Two weeks after the first letter, Maria found another one waiting for her in the mailbox. This one, in part, read, quote, Mr. and Mrs. Braddis," and they have it spelled wrong. It's it's not, but they have it B-A-R-B-A-R. D-R-A-D-D-U-S. Well, it says Mr. and Mrs. Braddus. Welcome again to your new home at 657 Boulevard. The workers have been busy, and I have been watching you unload cartfuls of your personal belongings. The dumpster is a nice touch. Have they found what is in the walls yet? In time, they will. The writer then mentioned all three children by birth order and nicknames and going on to say, quote, I am pleased to know your names now and the names of the young blood you have brought to me. You certainly say their names often. 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all of the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement, or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic, or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedroom facing the street? I'll know as soon as you all move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher and have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession. And now you are too, Bradis family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard, and now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving-in day. You know I will be watching. <laughs> so, <laughs> it just gives me the shivers. Like, it just, I don't know. It's just nuts. Totally freaked out at this point, the family avoided coming to their new house and not even bringing their children there. After a few weeks, another letter showed up saying, quote, Where have you gone to if 657 Boulevard is missing you? The house is crying from all of the pain it is going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. You're stealing its history. It cries for the past and what used to be in the time when I roamed its halls. The 1960s were a good time for 657 Boulevard when I ran from room to room imagining the life within the rich occupants there. The house was full of life and young blood. Then it got old and so did my father, but he kept watching until the day he died. And now I watch and wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. The letter went on to say, 657 Boulevard is turning on me. It is coming after me. I don't understand why. What spell did you cast on it? It used to be my friend, and now it is my enemy. I am in charge of 657 Boulevard. It is not in charge of me. I will fend off its bad things and wait for it to become good again. It will not punish me. I will rise again. I will be patient and wait for this to pass and for you to bring the young blood back to me. 657 Boulevard needs young blood. It needs you. Come back. Let the young blood play again like I once did. Let the young blood sleep in 657 Boulevard. Stop changing it and let it alone. Stop calling them young blood. Exactly. Exactly. That's so creepy. The Broadduses began to suspect that it was their next-door neighbors, the Langfords. Peggy Langford was in her 90s and lives with some of her adult children who are in their 50s and 60s. Michael Langford, one of the sons, was interviewed by the police, but nothing came of it according to his brother sandy langford michael had been diagnosed with schizophrenia as a teen he did weird things like walk through people's backyards or peek into the windows of homes that were being remodeled but most people said he was also unusually kind and friendly bringing them their newspapers from the curb and stuff like that people who knew him said that there was no way he was the letter sender six months after the letters arrived the Broaduses decided to sell 657 boulevard which i would have too (laughs) They told potential buyers about receiving some threatening letters and decided to show the letters to anyone whose offer was accepted. Almost all of the offers coming in were way below what the Broadduses were asking, mostly because rumors had started running rampant about why the house was still sitting empty. On June 2nd, 2015, a year after buying the house, they had filed a legal complaint against the Woodses, arguing that the Woodses should have disclosed the letter. They intended for the whole thing to remain quiet, and their lawyer told them that the story might only show up once or twice in minor legal journals. No. The story, like, immediately (laughs) went viral, and it was a huge thing. I mean, that's when I first heard about it was when this first went viral like this. News trucks started to line the street outside the house, and the family received over 300 media requests. The homes in the surrounding area were understandably freaked out since most of them had never been questioned by the police or made aware of what was going on. It came out later that after the story broke, a lot of the neighbors got together to try to figure out what was going on, and they came to the conclusion that they believe the Broadduses concocted this whole scheme on their own, realizing that they couldn't afford the house and were looking for a way to get out of it to poke some kind of insurance scam or to get money from a movie deal. Which... <laughs> the woods a exactly. Exactly. And I don't understand why that didn't come up in there. That, Like Krista said, if you couldn't hear her, that doesn't explain why the Woods has got a, a letter from Watcher 2. So basically it turned into a big he said, she said with the Broadduses and their neighbors. The neighbors basically wanted them gone, worrying about how it was affecting the neighborhood and the property values. The Broadduses' real estate lawyer came up with the idea to sell the house to a developer who would tear it down and split the property up so that two homes could be put up on it. The neighbors strongly fought this idea, saying that it would destroy trees and change the aesthetics of The neighborhood. Abby Langford, one of the women that had grown up next door, stood up to say she had, quote, spent almost 60 years looking at a magnificent, beautiful house and didn't want to be looking out at a driveway. Two years after the watcher's letters arrived, the Broadduses borrowed money from family members to buy a second home in Westfield, which is the same town. So they just got rid, they wanted to get rid of this house and just bought a new house in Westfield. A family with grown children and two big dogs had agreed to rent 657 Boulevard. The renter said that he wasn't really worried about it, but he did have a clause written to the contract that he could stop renting the house at any time, which is a good idea. Two weeks later, Derek went to 657 to do some maintenance work when the renter gave him a letter that had just arrived. In part, the letter said, quote, "'Violent winds and bitter cold to the vile and spiteful Derek and his wench of a wife, Maria.'" "'You wonder who the Watcher is? Turn around, idiots. "'Maybe you even spoke to me, one of the so-called neighbors "'who has no idea who the Watcher could be. "'Or maybe you do know and are too scared to tell anyone. Good move. "'I walked by the news trucks when they took over my neighborhood and mocked me. "'I watched as you watched from the dark house in an attempt to find me. "'Telescopes and binoculars are wonderful inventions. "'657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault "'and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates.' My soldiers of the boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. All hail the watcher. The letter also included a threat saying, quote, Maybe a car accident. Maybe a fire. Maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away, but makes you feel sick day after day after day after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet. Loved ones suddenly die. Planes and cars and bicycles crash. Bones break. So... That was the the letter. I think that might have been the last letter received. The house was finally sold in July of this year, 2019, for $959,000. A year after the fact, it was discovered that the initial police canvas had missed an important clue. Around the same time that the Broadises had received their first letter, another family on the boulevard got a similar letter from someone calling themselves The Watcher. They threw the letter away just as the Woodses had. After the news broke, one of the children posted about it on Facebook then quickly deleted the post. When investigators spoke to the family, they confirmed that the letter had been very similar to the one sent to the Broadduses. An investigator looking into the case believed that the letter writer was someone in their 50s or 60s and they lived very close to the house. And lastly, a DNA test on the letters revealed that the person who sealed the envelopes was female which surprised me Mm. because I don't know. I assumed it was a male. I really did. And that's basically it. Uh, The Broadduses moved to another house in Westfield, and they said there's still a lot of tension between them and the neighbors from that house that they didn't move into. Derek is quoted as saying, quote, I see these people on the soccer field at the train station, and my heart starts going like it did when I played hockey and was about to get into a fight. And that's basically all I have. That's the story of The Watcher. This family bought this house, was sent these bizarre letters by someone calling themselves The Watcher, and eventually sold the house, bought a different house in the town. I I can't see them wanting to get out of realizing that they paid too much and couldn't afford the house there's better ways to get out of it than
1: than writing yeah you're gonna lose a lot of money on i mean just the fact that they bought it or are gonna sell it for a loss and then now if they can't afford it i mean what are you gonna do what maybe the movie deal but that's such a convoluted way it's of a very
0: convoluted way to go about
1: getting some money. But like you said, it doesn't. Why? the family before him got one? So yeah, the it, the, the, the Woodses got one. The neighbors down the street got one from the Watcher. So it makes sense that it's somebody in the on the block in the neighborhood, and if it's somebody in their fifties or sixties and female, there's got to be but only their a next small door neighbor alone. was
0: ninety, and I could see, and it was uh, what was her name. Peggy Langford. It was in yeah. the 90s. And I could see, I mean, that would fit kind of with the chronology of their grandfather watched it, God. their father watched it. it. doesn't sound
1: like a 90-year-old, though. I mean, no. Some of the, the way it's written, it sounds like it's, it's apocalyptic, but yet not. It's like religious. It's like a the, combination. The police
0: said that whoever was sending the letters was very well read because yeah. they're very well, like a gothic horror novel, written
1: like a gothic horror novel. They all seem to make sense together it's not like one is written by somebody the second one is written by somebody else the third one is written by somebody who saw it in the paper yeah it all sounds the same it all sounds like it's written by the same author but what's
0: the point of it why are they trying to freak out the family to get the family to leave and if they are
1: why yeah i mean they talk about wanting the young blood to roam the halls and all that kind of stuff but by sending this letter you're making them want to leave yeah
0: exactly exactly so was the intention to get them to leave but then why were the Woodses sent
1: a letter? Why was the neighbor down the street sent a letter oh, by the does, watcher? Did it say how long the Woodses were there? If they only received one letter and say they were there for 10 years? I don't I
0: don't remember seeing how long the Woodses were there, but I'm it sounds like they've been there quite a while. So then why all of a sudden for the Woodses know. at the very end there? I don't know. I mean is this just some crackpot neighbor? My guess is that when she, when, and I always assumed the letter writer was male, like in my head, it was always male. So it like kind of shocked me that it was the DNA said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But to me that, I don't know why it struck me as being a male thing for the watcher. But what I, my guess is that like the watcher immediately knew the nicknames of the kids and all that stuff. And when she would come there with the kids at the beginning and they would run too far in the yard and she would yell their name, that's possibly how... I mean, that would pin it as a next-door neighbor or somebody very close to the house that would overhear her yelling the children's names.
1: Yeah, and the the fact that one of the original watchers' letters said that they used to run through the halls. Yeah, that I don't understand. Like, why
0: did they... So maybe when the house was for sale, they would periodically maybe go when... in and look? Or was when they were friends with the neighbors and they would come to the house but it sounded the way they made it sound was like it was abandoned when they were running through the
1: house yeah and i don't know i mean i guess to play devil's advocate just because the dna came back's female somebody licked the envelope it doesn't mean that the the letter was written by a female oh no you know it could have been the mail carrier it, yeah, realized that like, it was open go to the post
0: office it. with a letter and say crap i forgot to seal this could you just seal that for yeah. me yeah so it doesn't necessarily All the all of the the letters were from po- sent by post office in that near nearby to that city. Well, so it's it was definitely somebody It's somebody in near city. that city.
1: Yeah, just like the the reason for doing it doesn't make a whole lot of sense cuz it it sounds like you want the people to be there, but by receiving this letter, it's almost guaranteeing that they're going to want to leave. Yeah. So were they lying in the letters, you know, were they just trying to was it just a big joke? But it's such a long, spanning joke specific to, I guess, two families in that house, and then one more down the block. It sounds like it's just like a disgruntled like neighbor that doesn't yeah. like them. But but it's such a it's weird such way. Such a
0: weird way to go about. Go. About, are they trying? Are they nuts? You know? Are they purposely yeah. trying to scare them out? Is it the broadcasters themselves? I don't think so. But I don't have this in my in my research but like shortly t- towards the end when all this was going on and the neighbors were kind of turning against the Broadduses the neighbors started receiving letters that were like kind of poetic letters f- and it was signed from the friends of the Broaddus family and the uh the husband in the Broaddus family Derek admitted to sending the letters that he wrote the letters and sent them out so that's kind of I could see that though you're getting yeah you're getting you're getting inundated
1: like- with people saying that you're doing this so you kind of want to deflect the blame and put it on yeah. somebody else. I mean, you're,
0: they're in a just a crappy position because they're freaked out by this letter they're getting, and they have all the neighbors against them.
1: I'm you trying know? To think, like... A, have... a
0: lot of the, the neighbors were pissed that the police never contacted them, never came to ask them anything. And wouldn't you assume that that would have been one of the first things that the police did was to go question the neighbors because it obviously
1: sounds like a neighbor.
0: You yeah, know? I would
1: think, you know... Anybody that lives even in an apartment or in a neighborhood, you get to know your neighbors fairly well. And depending on like how close you are, like I look at like my place, I have older neighbors on both sides. Yeah. If they had kids, I would hear them being told, you know, child A and B is time to come in for dinner. Yeah. And then it turns into a nickname. Yeah. You can kind of gather that. Um, and then I think some people are snoopers, that if the house goes up for sale, you go next door, pretending to be a yeah just buyer, to, just, just to, to see, look, what just see, what see what they did or what, they, what the house yeah, looks like to compared to your house. So I can That's see all I totally that. Do, you know? It's just the wording of the letters makes it so specific and creepy. Yeah. And then all the references to young blood. Yeah. You know, it's like, why is the young blood such a? I mean, what if you would have got that when you moved into your new house? I probably would have threw it away as well. Yeah. You know? I I I don't know. You would you would have been freaked though, would not you? A little bit? I would have been. I would never would have showed it to my wife or anybody kids. else. <laughs> Maybe you. Kids. Yeah. But uh yeah, I just it. I wouldn't sleep after a No. No. <laughs> you just have I, to figure out like what the motive was. Yeah. Was it just a neighbor that's nuts? Yeah. I mean I like the fact that they mentioned it that one neighbor was schizophrenic, which I don't think really has no. anything to do with it. No, but I mean it. that's
0: That's one thing that's like really unfair is that as soon as a lot of people hear that, they peg it on him. It's the schizophrenic neighbor.
1: And the fact that the police didn't go like door to door. Yeah. Like I would think my entire street, at least my entire block, and then like the cul-de-sac across the street. You know, they have to circle around and come back through the cul-de-sac. Derek, uh, the husband... Had nights where
0: he would camp out like in the bushes or something to to keep track of who would be going by or who'd be passing by, and it was like nothing out of the ordinary. So they assumed it was a neighbor with binoculars or telescope or something watching the house. Yeah, where he says binoculars and telescopes are wonderful inventions. So I don't know. I mean, I assume that it's just a nuts neighbor, but it's creepy as hell. It really is.
1: You know, I could see if it was a, a female and somehow you become fixated on the male in the house, you know, whether it's an attraction or a revulsion, whatever it would be, or reversed if it's, you know, an older guy sees a younger wife and becomes fixated. But just the letters themselves yeah. and the way it's worded, it's not your normal, I'm watching you um, no. as you undress, you know, kind of thing. And then like bringing the kids into it, and yeah. then the young blood it's and saying the, that
0: we've watched this house for do you, did you find the secrets in the walls yeah it's like just really creepy yeah if it
1: would have been you know my grandfather watched the house my father watched the house and i watched the house it could be you know just based on where your windows are you happen to see what goes on in yeah. that house yeah but like you said the fact that it's you know i mean there's a lot of
0: like threats in there yeah there's uh i'll know as soon as you move in it'll help me know who is in which bedroom then i can plan better I yeah think that's that's not even a veiled threat
1: that's like a threat yeah there's definitely something wrong with the person that wrote it it's just a matter of trying to figure out what it is based on their writing and i'm I'm sure that it's going to be a popular enough thing where every uh coach psychologist is going to want to you know figure Figure out
0: out who why why they were writing this so i don't know i don't know Yes. No. I believe they didn't because I did not come across that in my research. If you couldn't hear, Krista said that she they sold the house, but asked if like the new owners got a letter yet. And I said I don't believe I've come across that in my research.
1: It just sounds like spite. Like for some reason they started to hate the the Woodses. Yeah. Uh, towards the end. And, and then, then the new family just with the yeah for some reason just but then why did
0: the other person on the block get a letter from the watcher is it just some probably bu- tick them is off it some crank some nut job that just doesn't yeah. if you tick them off they concoct the story about young blood roaming the halls and
1: yeah you would like to think with as as in the news or whatever it became you would have these copies copycats of the letters coming out all over oh,
0: the... yeah copycats coming out and, yeah, doing and sending these letters i mean it reminds me of the Circleville yeah letters from you know I want to have an episode on the Circleville writer because that's kind of crazy too that was a really that was one of my favorite unsolved mystery story
1: unsolved mystery stories, yeah, I don't if I were to guess, I would say it's just some weird person in the neighborhood that for some reason became fixated on the house and over time probably lost it more and more, and that's when the woods got their first letter yeah. Probably through some kind of you know they ticked them off, and then they just continued on with the new family, and it just got escalated from worse that. and worse, yeah. um but yeah, as to whether the bratties did it themselves, I don't think so I don't think I so. really don't think so I mean they it's
0: I'm surprised they didn't move out of the town because they still run into these neighbors that they got into this big fight with, yeah so I don't know that's that that is the watcher house. Two stories that will probably never know the no, answers to. No, I mean, the Ben McDaniel one, I, w- I always
1: hoped that they would find something. I'm kind of surprised they haven't. I really am. That's what makes you think. Maybe the he left and started a life over again. Yeah, I, but... are, are they ever going to figure out who this watcher is? I read that Derek, the
0: husband, wanted to hire a hacker to hack into all the wireless networks around the neighborhood to see if he could get onto someone's computer to find out... To find incriminating documents like he went way out of his way to see if he could figure out who was doing this well, like in the old
1: days if it was a typewriter you could match yeah. the typewriter yeah. to letter yep. now if it's I all mean,
0: it sounds like the watcher signature was signed i mean it sounds like it was signed i don't know i wish i could see a picture of the letters but i could not find any that's weird you would think you know? for as
1: popular as it became they'd want to keep that as
0: you know, maybe they're keeping it quiet so that yeah. they can determine who did. That it is somebody So there you go. Those are our two stories for tonight. Were they okay, Krista? Okay. Are you feeling okay? Okay. (laughs) Okay. All right. We have two questions. One of them is just kind of a basic one. The first question by Anonymous says, when will you two do a ghost hunt and recap the experience for an episode? We really should. We kind of have a little bit with the ghost hunts here at the school, but we need to do a full-blown ghost hunt. The answer to that is, I don't know when we will, but we really need to. Okay. Second question by Anonymous, <laughs> pop quiz hotshot from Speed. Oh. Uh, if you had a time machine, but it was a closed loop machine like the one in Primer, meaning you could only travel back as far as the first time you turned it on, what would you do with it? I
1: don't get that. Yeah, I'm confused. <laughs> so if I go to, like, say it's parked out back, I go turn it on, I have to wait x amount of time before i go back i've
0: never seen primer
1: Neither. yes
0: if you had a time machine but it was a closed loop machine like the one in primer meaning you can only travel back as far as the first time you turned it on what would you do with it i would go back to before you asked this question and just ignore it because <laughs> you're confused aren't you i am no but like it's saying that you have a time machine but you can only go back to the point where you first turned on the time machine. That was last week. Then you can only go back as far as last week. What would you do with it? Oh, all right. So I, would, I, 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 would, uh, I can tell you right now what I would do with it. I would turn it on right now, and then I would wait till a Powerball lottery got up to like near a billion dollars, and then I would go back to the point where I turned it on, and I would win the lottery. I know that's a bad answer. I know that's like a morally bad answer. It kind yeah. of is. I mean, like, what if what if the family that would have won that powerball could have used that money to save their kid from a disease?
1: I wouldn't know because whoa. I went back in time. I think that would be everybody's first thought would be looking out for themselves, but I think I would it's like say right now I would turn it on. I would wait for the first local death, accidental death or major event, go back and prevent it like say somebody gets killed in a bad car accident or a bus you know yeah. gets in a car accident and all the kids die if i could go back and say stop the driver that hit that bus from having another drink or turning down the wrong road go back and stop them from doing that i think i would try to be more altruistic with it but i know my wife would be like you know just take the money. You <laughs> know, I'm, I'm just wait thinking. for the. I, I'm usually the altruistic one, and my first thought was just get that money. See, my first thought is like whatever major event would happen locally that I could, yeah. I could do something about. Um, especially if it was like kids, you know, I have two of my own, so I would probably want to do something with that. But or like a disappearance, where right. I could go back and retrace the steps and either stop or find out, you know. Like you com- know, but comparing it to Maura that's... Murray, like if I could go back right before it happened and then oh she's right here or any missing person you know i can follow them into wherever they went but yeah you'd only be able to go back until that point that you turned the machine on yeah, so but you would once just I have to let machine... it sit yeah until that's what happened. it would be i would turn it on and just let it but sit that's and... when i get into the whole
0: yeah that's when i get into the whole you know like i've thought about this like if i had a time machine say i, I go back and stop 9-11 say i i prevent i tell the the fbi cia whatever i tell them I know, but I tell them who the hijackers are. I tell them what's going to happen. And I then say that, I save the day, say that 9-11 never happens. What's to say that we we would do that? And And then what's to say that we don't get all like, USA, rah, 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 see, we're the best. Nobody can do anything. And that pisses them off enough that they drop a dirty bomb in New York and kill millions of people. You know, what's to say that that's not going to happen if I stop nine eleven. That's when you get into the whole butterfly effect that you don't know what what effect your thing is. That's why I kind of – I I totally agree with yours, and I'm kind of surprised that I didn't go with that. I know. I, I'm,
1: went, I thought I would have been the one that would have been like, with yeah, the just, money <laughs> Sunday, I'm going like, nope, to go turn I'm, it on, find out the winning teams for the football games, and yeah. then go put a bunch of money on it in Vegas and yeah. roll on it. But, yeah, yeah. it's opposite. You would be the one that would normally do that and I'd be the I one that's all the money. money today. That's because I'm broke. <laughs> Krista? I don't know. I, I would do the money thing probably. Krista? Whenever, you can't hear me probably, but whenever I think about winning the lottery, my first thoughts are, okay, I can pay off Yeah. This for my parents. I can buy my brother a house. I can, I'm always thinking about all the people that I would take care of. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's the first thing I think about when I think about winning the lottery. It's yeah. Yeah. I guess you could do a little bit of both. I could put some money on a game and win some money and at the same time wait long enough to be able to solve some kind of problem. I just like mysteries and I like being able to be able to solve something. It sucks that you can't go back past the moment you turn yeah. the machine on. I
0: wanna know what happened to more Murray. You know, I wanna know all these things. So very interesting question. Deep. Very good question. So I think that's it for tonight. I think I got. Oh, we got. Corey is going to be reading our pickle okay. joke.
1: All right. What business does a smart pickle go into? I don't know. He opens a delicatessen. <laughs> that's so bad. That's... Obviously, this book is old because nobody refers to him as delicatessens anymore. No. Oh, and There was one that I saw that had Red skeleton in it, and it's just like, wow, man, that this is book, an old book is old. Yeah. Get, throw, throw one more. One more at random. Copyright 1974, the year I was Your,
0: born. You got Corey's birthday.
1: Not, not going to even do that one. <laughs> right. What is green and gets chased by dogs? What? A pickle puss. <laughs> oh <my God.
0: laughs> that is so bad. <sighs> wow. Uh, time for our deets. Unless you are the watcher, you can email us at Sessions at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at Strange Session without the S. Krista does a great job on Instagram. You said we have like a lot of followers. 398 followers on Instagram.
1: I have to apologize. I just followed like two days ago. Wow. I know. A little slack in there. I was just, I didn't have an Instagram account. Oh, so I made one.
0: I remember because your, your Facebook got hacked, and you got rid of a bunch of stuff.
1: Yeah, I stopped using Facebook for
0: forever yep. besides your podcast. And, well, thank you. Hey, help out. It's worth the, it's worth the risk. Uh, <laughs> and if you have postcards, we haven't got the postcard in a little while. I, I check a couple times a week, and I'm always sad when I stick my hand in there, and there's absolutely nothing. The other day I was excited because there was something in there, and it turned out to be a flyer for festival grocery store. That's not bad. No, no not was bad. Was it
1: for the strength sessions from It festival? wasn't, no. It just oh.
0: said... Or owner of this box or whatever. You can send us postcards and mail to the Strange Sessions, P.O. Box 434, Manitowoc, Wisconsin 54221 0434. And somebody please call our hotline. Our phone number is 920 443 9602. I should actually make sure that when I updated my phone that I still get notifications. There's probably like 20 messages on there that I'm not. I'll check after the episode.
1: If there's one talking about young blood, yeah. That if there's one.
0: anything talking like, like a creepy voice talking about young blood, no, thank you. And I think that's it. So Corey, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: I feel like a backup quarterback that had to come in for the big game,
0: but <laughs> but when you when you come in, you. Throw a touchdown? Kick a touchdown? Throw a touchdown. Throw a touchdown. (laughs) Kick a home run? You kick a home run. There you go.
1: I know (laughs) sports isn't your forte.
0: Krista, thank you so much for coming today, even though you feel like hot garbage. You don't sound as bad as I thought you were going to sound. Yeah. It's it's so bad in the morning. I I can see that you're kind of fading a little bit. You're kind of like, I just want to go. I I (laughs) want to go. Krista's falling asleep. So thank you so much for coming, even though you're ill. And... Uh, cory we'll have you on again sooner this time it's been a long time it has been juggling the schedule though is kind of a pain yeah my job schedule is difficult to be able yeah to here. yep but we'll make something work so thank you so much for joining us and for doing your research on this mystery which is an awesome mystery glad i could help out so thank you so much so from krista Corey, and i from the old school media studio until next time stay, stay strange, strange.
1: This has been an Old School Media production, executive produced by Kirk Konechny. For more information and content, please visit strangesessions.com.